as Catholics, there are things that I'm seeing that I did not see and would not have had a context for seeing um, as a, an evangelical, a Nazarene, a free Methodist, uh, any of that other stuff. The idea of keeping bread in a gold box in the holiest part I know. of your worship space. I know. You know, this is not something that we did, right? We didn't do that. But Catholics... They naturally have in the tabernacle yeah, yeah, at the yeah, front of their sanctuary. Yeah, and when I used to see the, the bread in the gold box, when I used to see that image of the tabernacle or the monstrance being displayed, it just looked kind of like insane. Hello and welcome to another Rough and Ready episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleague Ken Hensley and we thank you for participating in this to whatever extent you're able. You can subscribe if you'd like to keep getting more of these episodes delivered to you. You can also pass them along to people. Some of you are already participating in the conversations about these in our online community. You can find that at community.chnetwork.org and find all kinds of other resources uh, and stories, and much more from others who are interested in the Catholic faith and have shared their stories at chnetwork.org. Ken, how are you? I am doing just perfectly well. And this episode dropping as many people beginning their Lenten journey, which is 40 days, and that 40 days represents the time in the desert that Jesus spent being yes. tempted by the devil. It also represents the 40 years that the Israelites spent wandering in the wilderness, which seems appropriate given today's topic. Being tested, being tried. Yeah, you want me to launch? I say go for it. Okay, I don't, I'm not going to do a bunch of intro today because we've got quite a bit of material and I don't want to stretch it at the beginning. We're talking about the Eucharist. We're doing a series that I have titled, at least in my mind, is Our Journey to the Eucharist. You as a Methodist, me as a Baptist um, Evangelical Southern California, our journey to the Eucharist. And what we have been looking at is how the Old Covenant Exodus, the story of the Exodus, functions as a type of the New Covenant Exodus, salvation instituted in the body and blood of the New Covenant Passover sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God, said John the Baptist, who takes away the sins of the world. Last week, we looked at the Eucharist as the New Covenant Passover memorial offering that should be done, should be offered until he comes again. This week, we want to look at the Eucharist as the new covenant manna, that is the new covenant form or version of the supernatural food given to sustain us on our journey through the wilderness of this world to our, inter to our eternal inheritance. Okay? So that's where we're at. First, the old covenant manna. Let's talk about that for a moment. We read about the manna in Exodus chapter 16, which is actually it's a funny section of the Old Testament, I think, because immediately after their baptism in the Red Sea, which we read about in Exodus 14, God led the children of Israel into the desert, as you mentioned, um, 40 years it turned out, but to be tried and tested, led by the Spirit. Even as Jesus, we read in the Gospels, was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tested. So with the children of Israel. At first, it was all happiness. It was all thanksgiving. God had delivered them. And in Exodus 15, we read the song that Moses and the Israelites sang to the Lord 
after their miraculous Red Sea crossing on perfectly dry land. Remember the song, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. In fact, we read there about Miriam, the sister of Aaron, leading a group of women who are dancing and playing tambourines and singing about God's great deliverance. And we even did a whole multi-part series on how much that is an image of baptism, transferring from death into life um, as a way of marking the beginning of a brand new journey for the Christian in baptism, just like it was a new journey for the Israelites now that they were free from their masters in Egypt. Yeah, in fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says that they were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. Okay, so they're singing, they're playing their tambourines, they're jumping around, they're dancing, and this lasts for about three days. It lasts for about a week. Because by the time we turn the page over to Exodus chapter 16, the people are losing their minds. I I read, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Okay? Which is, I mean, this is so human, and it it, it reminds me of my life too often too. I mean, here here they've witnessed the ten plagues, the Passover. They've witnessed the crossing of the Red Sea, and yet give them a week, give them two weeks, you know, without what they were used to, and they're going bananas. They're they're grumbling. So a week or two in the desert, the Israelites have forgotten everything that the Lord had done for them, and they're begging. I mean, they're literally begging Moses to let them go back to Egypt and to slavery, or to just die in the wilderness. So what does the Lord do? He provides for them miracle food for the journey, manna from heaven, Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Give us this day our daily bread. You see that right there. They shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or not. And this was the whole topic of an episode that we did a couple weeks ago, which is the whole Miraculous Meals episode about how this is one of many ways mm-hmm. which God shows forth miraculously that, miraculously that he plans to provide not just for the spiritual comfort of his people, but that, the actual physical food that they need right, right. in desperate situations. Yeah, we mentioned this one in the Miracle Food, but since I knew we were going to come back and do a whole one, we didn't elaborate, but yeah, there are just a whole series of stories through the Old Testament and into the New of how God miraculously multiplies uh, for it to meet the need of his people. Now, the Lord also sent them quail, which we're not going to read about. He also made bitter water turn sweet for them. Several times he gave them water that was springing up from a rock, which Paul also refers to in 1 Corinthians 10. But focusing on the manna, a few things to notice. Okay, First of all, notice that this food was clearly supernatural. In Psalm 78 we read, Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Mortals ate the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. Okay, this is supernatural food. Second, the Israelites not only consumed a supernatural food as their daily bread during their journey through the desert, they were instructed to preserve some of it as well. This is in Exodus 16, verses 32 through 34, and Moses said, 
This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it, the manna, that is, let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, not only was the manna supernatural bread from heaven, it was also sacred. It was to be conceived of as holy. We see this in the fact that once the tabernacle has been constructed while at Mount Sinai, the manna, Moses is told, and Moses tells the people, was to be reserved in a golden urn in the Holy of Holies, in the most sacred place inside the very Ark of the Covenant, in fact. So, yep. And again, as Catholics, there are things that I'm seeing that I did not see and would not have had a context for seeing um, as a, an evangelical, a Nazarene, a free Methodist, uh, any of that other stuff. The idea of keeping bread in a gold box in the holiest part I know. of your worship space. I know. You know, this is not something that we did, right? We didn't do that. But Catholics, they naturally have in the tabernacle yeah. at the yeah. front of their sanctuary. Yeah, and when I used to see the, the bread in the gold box. When I used to see that image of the tabernacle or the monstrance being displayed, it just looked kind of like insane. But I'm not going to go there now theologically, but it is interesting that when you read this picture, it, you, you, you go, oh, well, yeah. It's not without precedent. Ken. Yeah, that's it's not without it, precedent. Not exactly <laughs> without sure. precedent. Yeah. So it was supernatural food, the manna. It was also holy. It was sacred. It was to be reserved in a golden urn in the Holy of Holies, in the very Ark of the Covenant. So, but also, and finally, the manna served as a foretaste of the inheritance that God's people um, would receive in the land that they were traveling toward, the land of promise. Uh, we read that it tasted like wafers made with honey. That's how it's described in Exodus. In other words, it was a foretaste of the land to which they were traveling, a land they, they were told would flow with milk and honey. So the, the land flows with milk and honey. The wafers that come down from the sky that they collect every morning taste like wafers made with honey. Um, this is a foretaste. And again, you know, your Catholic imagination goes crazy, you know, little wafers, the whole bit, okay? But this is a foretaste. And this is why we read in Joshua chapter 5 that once the children of Israel had crossed over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, finally, the manna that they had eaten for 40 years ceased to fall. Um, reading from Joshua chapter 5, and on the morrow after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased on the morrow when they ate the produce of the land and the people of Israel had manna no more. And, and it makes sense. Once the children of Israel had come into their inheritance, the manna, which was for the journey, which was a foretaste of that, that inheritance, um, it had served its purpose. It was no longer needed. Man, there's so much I want to say here now yeah. that I understand these things as a Catholic, right? Because <laughs> We understand that the sacraments are a sign uh, that is pointing towards the larger reality. It's a veiled, uh, a veiled yeah. way that God presents Himself to us until we reach that final, you yeah. know, meeting with Him in heaven when we no longer need the veil. We no longer need these signs and, and wonders, and that's exactly what you see happening here. But I would mm -hmm. not have seen any of this. I, what I would have seen is, and uh, you're getting into this in a little bit mm -hmm. more. Here's an example of how God has a plan for his people, and he will provide for his people mm -hmm. miraculously if necessary because he knows the plans that he has for them. That's the lesson that I would have taken from all of this. Yeah, in fact, I 
don't know if I even connected the manna to the to the Lord's Supper, but I but anyway, you know, um, you know, as a type, even uh, I probably did, but I just don't remember. It's been a long time now. Okay, but now there's the manna of in the Old Testament, but now let's move forward to the time of Christ. We learned last week that in Jewish tradition outside of the Bible, but at the time of our Lord, there was a tradition uh, floating about that when the Messiah delivered his people, he would begin that deliverance on the very night of the Passover. This is what we treated in our last episode. Okay, another tradition, it turns out, Matt, was that when the Messiah finally came, he would bring back the miracle of the manna. So there was this idea floating around when the Messiah comes, he's going to launch the deliverance of his people on the night of Passover, and he's also going to reinstitute the miracle of the manna in some way. Um, here's a passage from Second Baruch, a, um, a, a text which is outside the, the canon of Scripture. And it will happen that when all that which should come to pass in these parts is accomplished, the Messiah will bring to be revealed, will begin to be revealed, and it will happen at that time that the treasury of manna will come down again from on high, and they will eat of it in those years. Okay, so interesting Jewish tradition in the background. And it, it becomes all the more interesting when Jesus comes along and he begins to make allusions to the manna. First of all, you say, by the way, you say allusions, plural. I have only ever noticed the one illusion that you're going to get to later. I did not notice the illusion that you're about to make. Yeah. Well, you're a mind reader. How do you even know what I'm about to do? How do you always know? <laughs> you sent me some ideas. <laughs> and you know. Okay. <laughs> All right. First, okay. I think that we can see an allusion to the manna in Jesus's teaching of the Lord's Prayer. When you first of all, when you read the Lord's Prayer carefully, I think it becomes clear that the Lord's Prayer is a prayer for those on the journey. It's a prayer for those who are traveling through the desert of this life toward their eternal inheritance. Think about it from that perspective. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. You know, it's a plea, Lord, that your kingdom will come, that thy will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the meantime, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass again against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one, from the time of testing, some have translated it, whatnot. You see, it's a prayer for the journey. Now, in his very, very good book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, um, Brant Petrie explains why he believes that in this prayer there's an allusion to the manna. So I didn't dream this up. I'm getting it from him and from others. And, and here it is. Although the Greek word epiousios is usually translated, in most of our English Bibles, it's translated by the word daily. Give us this day our daily bread, which is kind of strange because why is Jesus re, you know, repeating himself? Give us this day our daily bread, but that's how it's typically translated. But he, even though that's the case, scholars still debate the meaning of this word. And the reason they debate it is that this word occurs for the very first time in all of ancient Greek literature right here in Matthew chapter 6. So it's not a word that they can just go to and say, well, how's it used in Homer? How is it used in Hesiod? How is it used in, you know, um, you know, Aeschylus or Euripides or something like that? The word epiousios, this Greek term, occurs here for the very first time in ancient Greek literature. 
What Dr. Petrie points out is that when we simply look at the word just straight away, we can see that it's comprised of two Greek words. First of all, the Greek preposition epi, which means on or upon or above, epi. And then the Greek noun ousios, ousios, which means being or substance or nature. Okay, in other words, put those together. Upon nature, on nature, above substance. Above nature. Super. Yeah, we, we have an epidermis, which is the above layer right, of, all, right, of our skin, right. right? Coming from the Greek, yeah. So epiousios, if you just read it literally, the word means, and since we don't have anything to compare it with in the ancient world, you read it literally, it means upon nature, or above nature, or above substance, upon substance, or supernatural, if you will. When St. Jerome translated the Greek into the Latin for the Vulgate in the 4th century, in fact, he translated this line of the prayer, and I quote, give us this day our super substantial bread. Give us our super substantial bread. He took this to be a reference to the Eucharist. And it's not just Jerome. St. Cyril of Jerusalem wrote, and I quote, common bread is not super substantial, but the holy bread is super substantial. St. Cyprian of Carthage, writing around 250, wrote that the bread Jesus described in the Lord's Prayer is heavenly bread, or the food of salvation. This is St. Cyprian of Carthage. So what Dr. Petrie basically wants to argue, and it makes sense to me, is that the fathers were correct in their translation of Epiusios, and that when Jesus spoke these words to first-century Jews— who, who knew the tradition and all that, and knew the Old Testament, they would have understood that Jesus was referring to the new manna that the Messiah would bring to his people. And I'm quoting Petrie now. Any ancient Jew who heard a prayer for bread that was both daily, remember the manna fell every, day, every night? Bread that was both daily and supernatural would have immediately thought of the manna of the Exodus. This is especially true if the prayer for daily supernatural bread also mentioned the final coming of the kingdom of God. And then one more quote that sounds a lot like what you started to say a little while ago, Matt. This is from the very, very famous New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who, who, who has written about this, applying it to the New Testament. Listen to what he says. Manna was not needed in Egypt. They had food. Nor would it be needed in the promised land. It is the food of inaugurated eschatology. That is, it is the food that is needed because the kingdom has already broken in and because it is not yet consummated. The kingdom has broken in, but it is not yet consummated. And the manna is the food that you need in that interim, the food for the journey. Quoting again from N.T. Wright, the daily provision of manna signals that the exodus has begun, and he's talking about the New Testament exodus, that the exodus has begun, but also that we are not yet living in the land. I mean, isn't that a crazy image when you put that all together? It really is. And it's not how I would have thought when I prayed that prayer, daily bread. There may have been sermons that connected mm -hmm. the idea of daily bread with the manna in the desert. They don't stick out to my mind. And it wouldn't have bothered me or made me think of too much if it, if they had. But the, the way that I most commonly heard the idea of daily bread uh Mm -hmm. talked about or, or understood. And I don't know, I'd be curious as to how you would have preached about uh, the concept as a Baptist pastor, but it, in the sermons that I recall from, you mm -hmm. know, growing up in Methodist and Nazarene congregations all through going to a Wesleyan tradition Bible college, 
the idea is that God will give you exactly what you need for mm-hmm. today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah, yeah the whatever basic that is. practical today, lesson. Just, just trust him. Just ask him. Don't ask him for all the mm-hmm, things that you mm-hmm. need for tomorrow. Don't ask him for all the things that you need for 25 years from now. Ask him for what you need for today because he was is going to take care of you just like he takes care of the lilies of the field, except more so because, mm-hmm. you know, you are his And that's entirely creation. true. That's an entirely yeah. true and beautiful application, you know, of the whole idea. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. Your father knows what you need. Look at the lilies of the field. Sure. Um, as a perfectly true application, which I would have made, and so Catholics make that, Eastern Orthodox make that, Protestantism makes that, but I wouldn't have thought of it. And the thing is, when I pray the Lord's Prayer now, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. It's a, it's a, I'm on the journey. The kingdom has begun. Jesus said the kingdom, the kingdom came with him. And especially when he ascended to the right hand of the Father and pours out the Holy Spirit and begins to reign until every knee bows and every tongue confesses, the kingdom is broken in, but the kingdom is not consummated yet. So thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then give us this day our super substantial, our supernatural bread. That's for the one who goes to daily mass then, you know. I, I couldn't, yeah, I was about to say, I couldn't, now that I'm Catholic, and especially since the, the mm-hmm. you know, I, I visited a couple of Sunday masses, but the way that I really sort of cut my teeth and started learning the ropes of the liturgy was by going to daily masses. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I never heard, once I started to realize that the mass was offered daily, that's when I started hearing this idea of give us this day our daily bread in a completely different light. Before I mm-hmm. made all the mana connections, it was like, oh, mm-hmm. this bread is offered as the body and blood of Christ daily. And this church, not just you know once a month. Well, the, <laughs> you one know, there's, there's one a more thing about this before we here. move on is the interesting question that when Jesus taught the disciples this prayer, um, he may not have even begun to speak of the Eucharist yet or the future, so they would have taken it as referring to the manna, you know, and they they might have been thinking of that tradition that when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring the manna again, but they definitely would have tied it back, as Petrie says, they would have tied it back when he said. When he spoke of a daily bread that is that is epiousios, that is above nature, that is super substantial or whatever, they would have had the manna in their mind. Whether they thought, "Wow, is Jesus going to bring a new manna, or what's going on?" You know, we don't really yeah. know at that point. Just like all the things they recalled from, like the transfiguration, that they didn't have any yeah. idea what was going on at the time, but afterwards they're like, "Oh my goodness, this makes so much sense now." Or when he was talking about destroying the temple and raising it back, building it back up in three days. How yeah. you know. What, how much fun would it have been to be an apostle and have all those light bulbs go off at yeah. Pentecost when you're like, oh, now I understand what all that stuff meant. Okay, let's move forward, I though. Mean, <laughs> there's because a lot of it. While I think we have an allusion to it, to the manna in the Lord's Supper, obviously the passage where Jesus speaks more than anywhere else of the manna is in John chapter 6, uh, which is referred to commonly as the bread of life discourse, where we're going to spend the rest of our time here, okay? In fact, the entire context of this passage, this bread of life discourse, turns out to be the Jewish expectation of a new Moses or new or a Messiah, a new Moses, the Messiah, who would bring new manna from heaven. Okay, it was understood by the Jews at the time that Moses had fed the children of Israel with bread from heaven, and that he had promised that one day the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. That's what Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18, 13. It's recorded. Because of this, when Jesus took the five loaves and the two fishes, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, 
when he took the loaves and the fishes and he multiplied them miraculously to feed thousands of people, which is how John chapter 6 begins, the crowds recognized him right away as the one promised by Moses, the Messiah, the new Moses, the one who would bring the new manna, and they cried out, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Understandably, they asked for the new manna that they believed that this prophet would bring. And so we read, um, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. To which Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That's verse 35. And I must say, Matt, when I was an evangelical, I would have said, yes, Jesus is the bread of life. Yes, he's the bread sent from the Father, sent down from heaven, you know, that, that, that we need to receive in order to have eternal life. Yes, Jesus is the true manna. The manna is the type, the shadow. It's fulfilled in Jesus. He is the bread of God, the true manna. But I would have also said, and how do we come to partake of this manna? Jesus tells us right here, he who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. All we need to do is come to Jesus and believe in him. That's all Jesus is saying in this passage. That's exactly what I would have said. How about you? Well, I would have said the same thing. I would have said that Jesus says, I am the bread of life, right? But he also says things like, I am the shepherd. I am the gate. I am the vine. I am the branches. Uh, here is just another example of Jesus using metaphorical language to talk about how he is our guard and protector and sustenance and leader and everything else. Jesus says a lot of things that are metaphorical in the course of his teaching in the scriptures. Yeah, I'm the vine. I am the door. I am the door. Lots of metaphors. And so, okay, so, so verse 35 was a key where he says, he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me. And that's what I would have stressed. All Jesus is saying is that we must come to him and believe in him. All of the rest is metaphor. So I will admit that I never gave any thought to there being more to it until I began to look at Catholicism and began to read the works of Catholic apologists and exegetes and whatnot. And so now I would say this, if, if, if Jesus's discourse in John 6 had ended with those words in verse 35, come to me, believe in me, I'm sure that I would have remained satisfied with that interpretation, the figurative interpretation, the metaphorical interpretation. The problem, though, is that Jesus' words don't end in verse 35. Instead, Jesus goes on, and he goes on to say things that I found more and more and more increasingly difficult to interpret as merely the command to come to him and believe in him. Um, so what am I talking about? Well, it's kind of progressive. First of all, he begins to identify this living bread with his flesh. So, you know, yeah, he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. And suddenly he's identifying the bread with his flesh, which is 
This is kind of a graphic word. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, now hearing Jesus say this, the Jews begin to dispute among themselves. And again, that's no big deal. They're always doing that. They say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And um, what's our Lord's response? Again, I'll preface it by saying, I would not have had a problem with this either, because there are plenty of times where Jesus told parables um, in order to um, judicial, ju- judicially harden and blind the blind ones that he was talking to. So his response, though, is interesting. He doesn't explain what he means by this. I mean, he, he doesn't explain that what he means when he says, come to him and believe in him. is it, 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 That's all he means, okay? He doesn't say that. Instead, Jesus intensifies his language. He begins to insist in the most literal and graphic of terms that his listeners must eat his flesh and drink his blood if they would have life. Jesus even switches, I know you know this, Matt, Jesus even switches from using the normal Greek verb to eat, and he begins to use a word that is much stronger. It's a word that means to crunch or to chew. or to gnaw, I've even heard translated munch. And in fact, he repeats this particular verb four times in just the next few sentences. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat, normal verb, the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in him. He who chews my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who gnaws on my flesh, I'm doing the translation, and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. He who gnaws on me will live because of me. He who crunches this bread will live forever. And at this point, not only are the Jewish crowds listening to him, the Jewish crowds, offended and scandalized. His disciples are offended, and they are scandalized. And we read many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then we read that after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. So it's like I said, it's increasing. At the beginning, it's like, okay, this is easy. Come to me, believe me, that's all he means. And then, okay, you must eat my flesh. Well, that's kind kind of graphic, but still... I understand. Like you said, he's going to give his flesh on the cross and die, and then we come to him and believe in him. But when but when the crowds begin to become um, offended and scandalized by what he's saying, including his disciples, he just presses it all the more, and he drops the usual verb for to eat, and he brings on this other verb, what, you know, so, and he just keeps plowing in, basically. No, yeah. I, I'm telling you, you've got to crunch, you've got to chew, you've got to gnaw on my flesh and eat and drink my blood, or you have no life in you. And then, what does Jesus do? Well, you would think that at this point, Jesus would pull the apostles aside, and they say, Lord, what are you What are you doing? And he said something like, maybe he says in a few other passages, which is to the effect of, oh, I'm just messing with the Pharisees. They don't deserve to know the truth. They have blinded themselves in their own ignorance, and it's right. occasional, you know, important for me to give them a rise just to you know, overstate my point. Except he doesn't do that yeah. <laughs> at all. He has, he has several times when he told parables that were hard to understand, you know, he would take the his disciples aside, he would explain to them. In this situation, it's very different. He doesn't explain to them. He doesn't 
even taking one or two or three, I mean, even if it was just Peter, James, and John, or he doesn't take them aside and say, look, I'm speaking figuratively. This is all metaphorical. Don't worry. Instead, he lets his disciples leave. In fact, it says many of his disciples left and walked with him no more. So he let many of his disciples go away. He let them leave. And he even asked the 12 at this point, will you also go away? To which Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, at this point, it still was not impossible for me to just try and, uh, you know, reduce all of this to come to me and, and believe in me. But I was beginning to think there's something going on here. I mean, after all, Jesus' disciples had already come to him. Um, they had already believed in him. They, had al- they were already following him. Many of them had already taken up their cross to follow him. If this is all that he meant by eat my flesh and drink my blood, well, and yeah, maybe for the Pharisees, you know, for the uh, scribes and the Pharisees and whatnot the, who were blind, he, he might have been just hitting them with metaphor. But why would he have let them leave? Why would he have let many of his disciples walk away and and travel with him no longer? Seems he would have told them. This is another one of those passages from, from John chapter 6, this whole bread of life discourse that I read a whole bunch of times. But there's certain things that you, you know, I didn't know any Catholics until I was in my college years. Uh, and I met a priest on a retreat once. I, I didn't have anybody to explain this to me. I didn't understand how other, um, you know, Orthodox or Anglicans or even High Lutherans or Catholics yeah. understood this kind of language. I only knew that we didn't do anything like what they did in my congregations. I did. I wouldn't have even noticed that I was missing something big. You know, th- this is this is. I think uh, a point of confusion for a lot of people who just don't know the Catholic argument, this is what Jesus is saying is is sort of invisible to them because they don't have anything in their worship. I didn't have anything in my liturgical worship mm-hmm. that enacted this in any other way than just what you and I were talking about before, which is come to Jesus and take nourishment from him uh, by letting him be Lord of your life. That was yeah. the only context I had. And so once I found out that there was more to this, and there were people who took this in a very clear way, the, the passage that jumped out mm-hmm. to me from this whole thing, as I was trying to make sense and heads and tails of this, was where Jesus says, my flesh is true food, and my blood mm-hmm. is true drink. I can handle all the rest as metaphor, but when he says, my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink, mm-hmm. on top of everything else that he's saying, you know that there has to be something else going on beyond this. Um, and that's, yeah, again, and, where I began to be troubled. You know, and you mentioned a little while ago how there were things that Jesus said to his disciples that they didn't get at the time um, and that they would only understand later. You know, and and in a sense, I see that here, too, that, that they may have been as mesmerized. I mean, obviously, Peter, James, and John and the disciples didn't understand what he was saying either. Because when Jesus says, are you going to leave too? They don't say, no, we understand, you know, what you're saying and it's perfectly fine, you know. Instead, they just say, well, we don't have anywhere else to go. To whom will we, sh- should we go? You have the words of eternal life. So basically, even though what you're saying 
is cr- sounds crazy to us, and we don't even know what you mean. Ultimately, we're sticking with you. And so, in a similar way, you said that the disciples watched the the um, the um, um, transfiguration, and then didn't know what it was, and then only understood later. Well, in a sense, that's true of us. We only understand later when the church is founded. And we can look into what the church actually believed and taught. Now, the church in both the East and the West, as we've seen, universally, for the first 14, I mean, 1500 years of its existence, held that Jesus was indeed saying something more than, come to me and believe in me. But that's that, what they held. That fact, by the way, just like those verses that you read from John 6 were just mm-hmm. an invisible thing or a complete blind spot in my awareness. Right. I did not believe. I did not realize the Orthodox believed this. You read you the know, fathers of the Church in both the all. East and the West for centuries and centuries and centuries, and they see Jesus pointing forward to a time when, after his suffering and his death on the cross, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, that he would, in some miraculous manner, provide a new manner, a new manna for the new covenant people of God. That he would give his body and blood as supernatural food and drink. This is what the church holds and held for 1,500 years. And so what I'm saying is, though, in a similar way, I can even read John 6, and I can put myself into John 6 and realize, I know he's he's saying something more than come to me and believe in me. There's something more than that going on. But I I still might have been just mesmerized and thought, I don't know what he's talking about, but I'm following him. You know, And, and we find out when we see what the church held, the church that was founded by the apostles, whose teaching was given to the church, you know, as Irenaeus says, you know, like a rich man puts his money in the bank, so the apostles put their teaching into the church. So, and, and he said, anyone who wants to know the truth can come to the church to find it. Well, when we come to the church to look at it, this is what we find. And I wanted to give one quotation from, from St. Augustine, who um, Protestants like to quote as being the father of Protestantism almost. Here's something that he said in a sermon where he talked about the Eucharist. I promised you, new Christians he's talking to, who have now been baptized, a sermon in which I would explain the sacrament of the Lord's table. Okay, here we've got St. Augustine explaining to us the sacrament of the Lord's table. This is what he says. The bread you see on the altar, on the altar, having been sanctified by the word of God, is the body of Christ. The chalice, or rather what is in the chalice, having been sanctified by the word of God, is the blood of Christ. What you see is the bread and the chalice. That is what your own eyes report to you. But your faith obliges you to accept that the bread is the body of Christ and the chalice is the blood of Christ. That's what the church held. And that's that's mic drop stuff there. And again, and I mentioned this a few uh, episodes ago, as I'm reading and discovering this, I'm having major freak out moments because I'm, you know, working in a little bit of a house church situation and I've been in a whole bunch of, you know, pretty low-key, unstructured, uh, very low church situations where we've had Holy Communion. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. did we accidentally consecrate oyster yeah. crackers into the body of Christ? Because I again, I don't I didn't have the whole framework of understanding of how this actually works in practice, right. how apostolic succession functions, uh, how ordination is understood in a sacramental mm-hmm. economy. There was a lot that I was 
worried and wondering about. But I, but again, once you start to realize these things, you realize you cannot think of Christian worship as just, hey, let's sing some songs and hear a talk anymore. You have to think that worship as a Christian has to be something more than what you thought it was your whole Christian life. Yeah, you know, there. Oh man, what you're saying is evoking so many things, and I, I'm looking at the clock. I don't want to go on and on and on. But one thing that this is is a reminder of to me too, at least as a Baptist, I will say this, which is pretty far out there on the sola scriptura edge of things, and you know, a non-denominational, essentially evangelical. Um, I looked only to the New Testament to form my doctrine. Okay, um, I gave no weight to the early church. Um, I was, uh, I mean, my view was essentially the same as uh, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists. It was essentially, I guess, that the church had just apostatized so quickly that it didn't matter what was believed in the second century, late first century, third, fourth, fifth. It just didn't matter. It didn't enter into the equation. When I wanted to figure out what true Christian doctrine was, I'd look only at the New Testament. And when you look only at the New Testament, you can find yourself in situations where it's kind of like, it's kind of like the disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration. It's a little bit like, well, he could be saying this, and he could be saying that, but I'm no, I, I, I can't prove it. I'm not sh- totally sure, and so I will tend to take the minimal point of view. You see, it becomes kind of logical. Jesus sounds like he's saying something a lot more than come to me and believe me, but I can't prove it. So I'll, I'll take the minimal position that all he means is come to me and believe me. That, that's all he means. But as soon as you open your mind to the idea that what the apostles taught, they deposited in the church, and that what the church held is important. It's an important interpretive lens or key. And then you see Augustine here, then the picture fills itself out. Because it's not just Augustine, but it's everybody from Clement of Rome all the way through to Augustine and all the way through to the time of the Reformers or the Protestant Reformation. And so it's a whole nother way of looking at things. Okay. But we're working on typology, and I just want to say in closing, we've looked at the Eucharist as the New Covenant Passover memorial. Today we looked at the Eucharist as the New Covenant manna from God, and next week we're going to do one more of these. We're going to look at the Eucharist as the New Covenant bread of the presence, or the New Covenant showbread for those who, you know, reading the King James. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun, and I hope that you've uh, enjoyed this particular episode. I know that some of you um, have maybe just discovered this episode midstream, uh, we encourage you to go back and watch the previous pieces in this particular series on the Eucharist and on the journey. You can go to chnetwork.org to find them. Uh, We also encourage you to join the conversation. The best place to do that is not here in the wild, wild west world of YouTube. It's over in our online community, community community.chnetwork.org. Ken and I are in there taking part in the conversation. It's also a wonderful community of people with genuine questions, uh, respectfully engaging Mm-hmm. on questions just like this. So please do come visit us, community.chnetwork.org, and subscribe and uh, spread the word. I'm Matt Swaim. Thanks so much, Ken Hensley. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, buddy.